Hello and welcome to this Net Zero Investor Podcast. I'm Monica Woodley. At last year's COP26, BlackRock CEO Larry Fink described what he called the arbitrage of a lifetime. He saw that as investor demand for fossil fuel asset projects had waned, their cost of capital had risen, and this significantly increased the potential gains from concealing the dirty characteristics of those assets in order to obtain a lower cost of capital. However, this also shifts those assets from public to private hands, taking them out of the public eye and into relatively opaque private markets. Today, I'm talking with Ulf Erlinsund, who is the founder and CEO of the Anthropocene Fixed Income Institute, who will help us to understand the implications of these shifts and what net zero investors need to look out for. Welcome, Ulf. Thank you, Monica. I'm very nice to be here. Um, let's start off with, I, I guess, kind of a broad explanation of, of how fixed income markets are, willingly or not, uh, involved in fostering these types of transaction flows. Well, on the one side, as we see more and more ESG type of rules and investment mandates being applied on the on the fixed income side, that actually leads to a shift of you know the traditional lending through public fixed income markets into other parts of the market because there's just not enough capital for you know the bad assets to access in the public fixed income markets. So that's a you know sort of a first order effect of that. But what then happens, and maybe what we will spend some time discussing here, is that there's a secondary effect also where fixed income investors intentionally or uh, most often unintentionally actually finance those private assets that that have taken over or those private uh, funding vehicles that have then taken over poorly aligned uh, type of assets. So, uh, for example, a fixed income investor might say, we're not buying the bonds of a particular coal company. But then as the spread sort of widens, between the private and the public markets in terms of cost of capital for that company, a bank might step in and say, okay, we're ready now to do a private loan to you as a coal company. But in turn, uh, the bank is reliant upon fixed income markets to do their funding. So they're sort of uh, getting involved or fixed income investors are getting involved in a secondary order in that way. Okay. And are are these, I I guess, how perhaps you you see leveraged loans facilitating private equity buyouts of, of fossil fuel assets as well. Yeah, I mean, this, these are sort of complex type of transactions. Uh, let me exemplify with, you know, there was a cold buyout in the US back in 2017 where a private ex- equity consortium bought out some uh, cold power assets. They got the leverage or, you know, the lending in that transaction from banks initially. Now, in May this year, the banks came out and said, okay, we've, we've been holding this hot potato for five years. We want this to be refinanced. And then they actually, uh, actually went to the public leveraged uh, loan markets. But this is, uh, you know, first it's the bank loans, uh, very private, but then it also becomes uh, part of the public uh, loan market. So there are lots of different ways to, to look at these transactions. And you just need to be very cognizant of those type of funding flows. Now, I've also heard about um, transactions that are are public to private to public transactions. Could you explain what that means and maybe give us an example of that as well? Yeah, it's where you essentially take an asset that has been in the public domain, you put it into some sort of private vehicle, but then the private vehicle sort of goes back to the public markets to create funding for their transactions. So a very clear example from actually related to that COP26 statement was a packaging of uh, Saudi Aramco's uh, pipeline assets into various uh, private vehicles, one of them run by a private consortium run by 
American uh, firm EIG Energy Partners. So they took the gas pipelines in Saudi from Saudi Aramco and a lease-lease-back transaction. Uh, they put in some of their own money, some equity money from the investment uh, consortium. But they also then went out and issued a public bond in a special purpose vehicle to fund the rest of the transaction, saying that this is only related to the lease-lease-back exposures. Now, the issue in, in a transaction like that is that you might have investors going into the special purpose vehicle bonds, which were issued out of a Luxembourgian vehicle in US dollars, those investors buying those bonds might not have bought Saudi Aramco bonds originally because of various ESG concerns. And that is the sort of the public to private to public. So it's a way of wrapping potentially bad assets in a way that public investors come back to them and it feels a little bit more appetizing. But really, it's, it's, it's just shifting around within balance sheets. It's not a real shift of or drive uh, of the higher cost of capital. Now, I've also heard about governments bailing out fossil fuel assets as, as well. Is this another concern as public market um, investors are unwilling to fund them? Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, it's very hard if fixed income investors generally have to be invested in government bonds, right? So if it is that you know private assets are or public assets are being shifted in through bailout structures into the sort of the private government sphere. You have no choice whether to you're you're going to be want to be in and financing those, even if you didn't want to do it when they were, you know, they're isolated assets. And the problem here is also a more general one that we see some coal assets that are you know, relying upon being so important so that they will always be bailed out. So it's a little bit too big to fail, as we talked to in the GFC, and hence they take risks that they wouldn't do otherwise. An example of this is uh, Uniper in, in Germany, which has been you know, loading up on a very concentrated exposure to Russian fossil fuel supplies over the past decade or so, even you know, after it became obvious that Russia is not going to be a democracy anymore, even after the invasion of Crimea. Juniper continued to do this very concentrated bet. Uh, and I do believe that a certain sense there was that, you know, we're so important for the energy supply of Germany that when or if there is a situation, we will get the support of the government. And if you're implicitly supporting that by, you know, uh, lending money to the government, then there is a sort of a secondary, secondary issue. And in that particular example, the bailout of Uniper, which has become one, if not the biggest in the corporate history. So even over uh, or exceeding what we saw in the great financial crisis, a new bond issuer or an SSA bond issuer, uh, KFW, has been set up as, as a sort of funding vehicle of that bailout. And I don't think that was uh, sort of the intention of a lot of the investors in the KFW bonds. And there's a lot of them. So... These things percolate in the government bond spaces as well, and, and investors need to be very, well, it's very hard to manage those uh, situations. There is exposure here, simply. Beyond that example that you gave with, uh, with Germany, are there any p- other particular countries or regions where you're, you're seeing this happen quite a bit? Yes, there are you know, a lot of examples. And I, I do think that as, as a broader theme, we see, especially when it comes to some of the coal assets, they're essentially... Uh, not being even uh, taken out by the private market unless there is some sort of uh, implicit uh, government support support there. So we are looking, you know, historically there's been a number of situations. There are things happening right now as well that we you know, might touch upon later in this conversation. 
Okay. Now, uh, a lot of fixed income investors who are wanting to to stick with an ESG criteria specifically use sustainability linked bonds in order to to ensure that they know where their money is is going to. But are are you seeing examples of companies using sustainability linked bonds um, and loans? finding ways to kind of get around the ideals, if not the actual rules of these products? Yeah, I mean, we've been working very hard with a particular case. So far, it's sort of idiosyncratic, but it's very extremely important, I think, for the market that this doesn't become endemic. So there's a Singaporean sort of energy uh, infrastructure conglomerate called Semcorp, half owned by the, you know, the Singaporean uh, sovereign wealth fund, Temasek. As late as in November this year, Semcorp decided or you know, got the approval uh, at an extra general meeting for, uh, with the shareholders to sell uh, some coal assets that they have in India. The problem here, though, was that the sale wasn't a real, real sale. It was a deferred uh, payment note put in there so that, uh, that the real sale doesn't happen until at the latest 2047. There were other sort of uh, economic liabilities still still around there. So the argument is from a lot of people in the industry saying that this is not real decarbonization and there is no decommissioning, decommissioning of the coal and so on. But well, how does this then link to sustainability-linked loans and such products? Well, the company motivated explicitly in why they wanted this transaction to go through in this way, that it was a way to avoid penalties in sustainability-linked loans unless they you know, managed to decarbonize enough. And in order to decarbonize enough, they essentially had to you know, shut down or get rid of these uh, Indian coal assets. And the way they did this was obviously clearly circumventing what the intention was with the sustainability links. I do think that the sustainability linked investors were pursuing reduced carbon emissions rather than shifting an operational asset, SEMCORP, into sort of a financed uh, private consortium type of asset. So this is an isolated transaction so far, but you know it's going to be really interesting in 2023 to see whether more of att- more attempts of trying to do this is going to happen, which would be quite worrisome. Okay, so obviously this was an example of, of trying to shift a specific asset off of uh, of the balance sheet. But are there any other ways in, in which you've seen companies that have issued sustainability linked bonds, I guess, fiddling <laughs> with uh, with the way in which their emissions are are measured in, in order to meet the criteria of their bonds? Not. Explicit, well, explicitly, we, we, we've seen cases, but it's also, you have to understand that the issuers, they're trying to optimize, they're trying to be rational and reduce, you know, whatever they have to pay. So I do think it's a sort of tongue-in-cheek example, but there's an oil company with a sustainability-linked bond outstanding where they're looking at, you know, carbon offsets. And what they do say is that, you know, if we make plastics out of the oil we produce, then it becomes a carbon sink. So that's somewhere where we can stick carbon and that sort of detracts from our carbon intensity. And I do think that that's probably a pretty, let's say, non-conservative view on how you should do the carbon accounting on this one. But even going back to the case of KFW and the Uniper, bay- Uniper bailout, I mean, that Uniper bailout is now going up towards uh, an excess of 51 billion euros. And KFW is um, you know, a, a very important, and I've been you know, engaging with them and, and been buying their green bonds. They've been a, a staple of, of the green bond market for a long time. And uh, you know, I think their total green bond issuance is somewhere in the region of 60 to 70 billion euros. 
over time and all. And then you put that in comparison with you know the amounts that are going into the Unipair bailout. And of course, that sort of taints the total footprint of what KFW is doing. If if they're doing good things on the green bond side, but then you know something like that happens on on the other side. So I think it's an unfortunate situation that one. So investors that are concerned about where their money is going and who are trying to to get to grips with their portfolio's carbon footprints, what do they need to be aware of and how can they try to avoid helping these types of, of transactions? So I think this is a really important discussion to have up at the CIO level, actually, because this goes across all asset classes. And one way to look at asset classes is that they attach to sort of different part of the capital structure of the companies that we're looking at. To start with, if you're like in alternatives, you have to understand that if you're a GP, a general partner in, in, in these structures, you need to really have a good look through in terms of what's going on in, in the alternatives, right? So we talked about that PE cold boy bailout in the US. Well, a lot of CLO funds were buyers of those leveraged loans. So if you have exposure to CLO funds, then you need to look through and say, are we involved in this particular cold buyout deal? Would we be able to buy this lighthouse deal if it were just a plain bond? Because you need to apply the rules, your ESG rules across all of the asset classes. So when we look at fixed income investors, they need to also you know, look through and be very wary of these sort of intermediary funding transactions. We spoke about the, the EIG special purpose vehicle, which seemed to be like a traditional index included bond. And you have to go through and say, you know, what is the actual risk here? So you don't get into a situation where you inadvertently put funding into leverage into these type of private transactions. Looking over to the public equity class where, you know, engagement is a very important tool. We talked about this SEMCORP transaction, 99.5% of the shareholders in that transaction. And sure, Temasek owned 50%, but there's a lot of other blue chip equity ESG engaged investors in that book. They need to also read through the materials and say, you know, is this a type of transaction of carbon footprint arbitrage that we you know, sign under on as a broader investment house? And I think a lot of people would come out with the conclusion and say, no, this is not how we want carbon accounting to be done. And we shouldn't approve this transaction. But that engagement needs to happen. So across both alternatives, across fixed income, across infrastructure, if you put that as a way as an alternative, but also across public equities, everyone. And this this needs to be taken a a, a common grip up on the CIO level, I think, in order to get a a comprehensive and, and cohesive picture across investment mandates. That, that's a very good point that I, I think this is not just a concern in, in fixed income markets. It, it's, it goes across different asset classes and, and really the message to investors is that they need to do their homework and understand um, exactly where their, their money is going. And uh, as you said, to engage uh, with the companies that they're invested in to ensure that companies are, are sticking to the promises that they've made. Uh, well, thank you very much for your time today. That was really helpful. Look forward to hopefully speaking with you another time. Thank you very much, Monica. Thanks for listening.